So really quickly, before we get into the subject of our message today, I wanted to just say a brief thank you to all of you who submitted your questions for this series. Your contributions have led our entire congregation to really important and critical conversations for which we are so grateful. Most of all, we hope that the time that we've had together has been really helpful, um, helped us all get a fuller understanding of the nuances of each question, and most of all, grounded us more and more in the life, ministry, and ethics of Jesus. So, thanks to all of you who submitted questions for partnering with us in this endeavor. Thanks to the Wednesday night small group for your continued discussion, which, by the way, all of you can still join if you like. Thank you for participating in this series. Okay, with that, I'd like to hand it off to Pastor Mark, who will get us started. Hi, Spark. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors in our community. Today, we're continuing with the sermon series, When a Child Asks where we share some thoughts on how we could respond when a child, or anyone, asks a particular question. Today's question, why are there homeless people? I signed up to talk about this particular issue thinking it would be pretty cut and dried, but it turns out that God and I have some things to resolve. So if a child, or anyone, asked me, why are there homeless people? Then my response would depend on the reason why the person's asking. As I shared in the previous discussion on, in this sermon series, I use a general theological framework to address the odyssey, or the struggle to understand why a good God allows bad things to happen. To reiterate, here's what I'd say. God gave every human being two amazing gifts, free will and being connected with other people. With free will, God makes me free to choose, and not just a robot that does what he's told. God lets me choose to do good things or bad things, because God loves me and wants me to choose to love. The being connected part? Well, you know those cargo nets or bridges at a playground? If I'm on one of those and I shake it, it shakes the entire cargo net and it shakes everyone on the net. So if I choose to do a good thing, then other people can get the blessing of that good thing. If I bounce on one side of the net and it shakes the net, then other people who like to bounce will bounce with me. So with these two gifts of free will and interconnectedness, I can really love God not just with a part of my heart or soul or strength, but with everything. And with these two gifts, I can really love my neighbor. Those gifts can magnify love, but they can also magnify selfishness and cruelty. If I choose to do a bad thing, then other people can be hurt by that bad thing, even if I didn't mean to hurt them. Remember the cargo net? If everyone else on the net is scared that they'll fall down or fall off, they'll tell me to stop bouncing. Then, if I decide to bounce on that net, it shakes them and makes them even more scared. And they might even fall off the net. That's not very loving. So why do bad things happen? Maybe because when we misuse God's gift of free will, and we choose to do bad things, or we choose not to do good things, then because of our interconnectedness, we can hurt people we didn't mean to hurt. To connect this framework specifically to the experience of homelessness, I could say this person may have made some choices that led to him not being able to live inside a house or not be able to live with his family. Maybe some other people made choices that hurt him. Maybe he lost his job. Maybe he lost his house. Or maybe he's sick and can't pay for a home to live in. There might be a whole lot of reasons for him not to have a house. But the most important thing about him is that he's a person and God loves him a lot. He's our neighbor too, and our job is to figure out the best way to love him. Now this might be the end of the conversation, 
But at that moment, or to continue the conversation later, asking the child questions might be a good idea. Are you curious about this person? What do you think it's like not to have a place to live? What do you think the person needs? Does he scare you? Why? Then we can start addressing some of those particular questions or concerns. If they're just curious, we could say, yeah, I wonder too. Everyone has a story. Maybe we can ask the person today, maybe later. Or if the person is scared, we could say, yeah, someone whose clothes aren't in good shape or haven't been able to take a bath in a while, they can be scary. Someone who is tired or sleepy or hungry or scared can act mean towards people. You know what that's like when you get hungry or tired or scared. People might have ignored him or treated him badly, and he might have hurt feelings. Sometimes when someone has hurt feelings, they can ignore others, they can treat others badly, or they can be scared to talk because they don't want to get their feelings hurt again. All people can be like that, but a homeless person might feel more hungry or tired or scared than we usually do. Now, we adults know these things. We know that there's many reasons for homelessness in our society. We know that it's not simply a consequence of drugs or alcohol addiction. It can be any combination of breakdowns in finances, family care, coping mechanisms, employment, health. We know that there's a difference between temporary homelessness brought on by financial difficulties or abusive relationships and the chronic homelessness that can result from chronic illness, disconnection, and hopelessness. We know that the faces of homelessness are not just single men and women, but family, the elderly, children, including kids that are now going to school in the family RV on El Camino Real with laptops and Wi-Fi borrowed from the school district. We know that homeless people can live on the street, but they can also live in cars and RVs where they can couch surf, bouncing from home to home of loved ones and friends. And when we look at scripture, we know that God imposed laws for the people of Israel to care for the poor and marginalized. We know that when Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. He meant that the humility that comes with poverty brings people closer to following God's heart. We know that when Jesus said, we always have the poor with us, it wasn't meant as a statement of inevitability. We know that when Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the homeless man, it was an indictment of those who ignored those in need right at their doorstep. It's a judgment upon our society and upon us that we allow anyone to reach this point due to consequences and circumstances and then remain there due to our apathy. And often our response to the homeless in our presence is avoidance or ignorance. We don't have time to help. We're just barely getting by as we are. Or they become a part of the landscape, just another person in the faces of people we encounter every day and dismiss. Or they're just another person I can't help. And so I ignore them to avoid the shame of my own inaction. We rationalize our failure to assist them, telling ourselves that they are merely experiencing the consequences of their own actions. Yeah, there are reasons outside their control that have helped them to, helped to bring them to the state, but ultimately, they deserve what they are experiencing. And we find scripture to support this view as well. We find verses in the wisdom writings that show poverty is the consequence of foolishness, and then we set in our minds that one's poverty comes solely from one's own foolishness. It's earned. The same verse we saw earlier for you always have the poor with you, we will turn into a justification for the eternal existence of poverty. We'll agree with the disciples who see a blind man and ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or this parent's parents, that he was born blind? 
and we see no other reason for suffering but deserved punishment. And we think of Jesus' parable of the talents, in which the person who fails to care for the money he is given is punished. We think of the money that we have earned, and when we encounter someone panhandling, our immediate response might be, what does this person want from me? If I give them something, will they misuse it? If I'm a good steward of God's resources, can I just give it away like this? Why do we think this way? It might be a defense mechanism for some of us, and it might make sense based on our past experiences. If you've been scoffed at or cursed at, or if you've seen someone buy liquor with what you've given to them, why would you do the same thing in another circumstance? What he needs is a hand up, not a hand out. There are programs meant to care for him, not individuals like me. He's a leech on society. He did something to deserve this, so why should I help him? The funny thing is, this can be what runs through our heads simply upon seeing a homeless person. This person hasn't even asked us for anything or even made eye contact with us. And sometimes we're going through these mental and ethical gymnastics. We've made it about us, our resources, our schedules, our time. We remain defensive. I remain defensive. Because once you realize what has befallen them could easily befall you, you get nervous. Once you realize what separates you from them is choices, circumstances, and therefore, but for the grace of God, go I, you get scared. Once you realize that a homeless person is one of us, not one of them, you're vulnerable. And we don't want to feel vulnerable or that our circumstances are just the luck of the draw. To adults then, a homeless person could be a threat to our understanding of the world, to our sense of security, to our stability in the financial economy and in society, to our personal safety, to our self-perception as a good person, because we are not aiding this person or because we have failed to help others in his position. I have always been fascinated and frightened by homelessness. My dad used to work blocks away from the Tenderloin in San Francisco. And as a kid, we would drive down Golden Gate Avenue on the way home, past the lines of people standing at St. Anthony's dining room, waiting for a meal. And then onto 6th Street, past scores of people yelling, screaming, fighting. And it scared me to death. Like watching a horror movie, I would cover my eyes or lower my head just below the window and then peek out from behind my hands. I would feel such guilt for seeing them and doing nothing. And as I got older, I started to form a callus towards the homeless among me. They did become just an object in the urban environment, just like a mailbox or a streetlight. As a kid, I knew that addictions brought some of those folks to their states in life. And I also knew my family members had used drugs, alcohol, and gambling to cope with their circumstances. And I was afraid that one day I'd also fall. As an adult, I read about the Gubbio Project in San Francisco which provides services to the homeless population, including the opening of sanctuaries in St. Boniface Catholic Church in the Tenderloin and St. John the Evangelist Episcopal Church in the Mission. These sanctuaries would be open to allow the homeless to sleep inside during the daytime. I wondered, why would they need to sleep during the daytime? And then I read an article in the San Francisco Chronicle about a group of clergy in the city that one week in a month would gather together and sleep outdoors in the Tenderloin to put themselves in the shoes of those they were meant to serve. So I decided to give it a shot. And one night, I slept in my car outside of a church in Santa Clara, right off of 101. I soon realized that I was not alone. Tens of cars were soon parked in the street and the parking lots near mine, all with fogged up windows. 
and I realized why the homeless would need to sleep during the daytime. Number one, it gets cold. So cold that your shivering keeps you awake. Number two, you don't feel safe. You feel exposed. You feel ashamed of your own behavior. You feel vulnerable to a police officer waking you up to tell you to move on or to someone attempting to steal something from you or much worse. I wanted to learn more, so I stopped looking at homeless people as the landscape and I started talking to them. One person asked me for some cash, so I invited him to a diner and had dinner with him. I learned his name was Eddie and that he was a cook in Oakland with sons and daughters before something happened and he was on the street for over a decade. When I moved down to LA for school, I would go to Little Tokyo a lot. Well, in Little Tokyo is Azusa Plaza, and there in 1906, the Azusa Street Revival took place. From that multi-ethnic, socioeconomically diverse Christian community grew all of the Pentecostal denominations in the U.S. and abroad, from this one place. I sat there in that plaza a few blocks away from Skid Row, looking at the tiny plaque marking the site. And a homeless man sat down next to me and engaged me in conversation. We sat there for about 20 minutes as he told me about the stuff that he and his girlfriend had stolen from a car two nights ago and how he couldn't sell any of it. And then he proceeded to ask me if I wanted to share some crack with him. I said, no, but thanks. And he asked, do you mind if I do? I said, no. And he proceeded to pull out a pipe and smoke a few feet away from me. It was surreal. And yet it felt so comfortable as though we were just sitting on his front porch as neighbors, just shooting the breeze. I ended up getting up to catch the light rail train back home, and he asked me to come back sometime and finish the conversation. I never did. A few months later, I took part in the L.A. County Homeless Census, where a partner and I walked through Pasadena, gathering data on the, un on the unhoused population. Some were standoffish, some were nervous, some walked away but some just wanted to tell us their stories, how they moved out of their parents' house and had been on the streets for years, how they had traveled to LA on a whim and found they couldn't afford a place to stay, how they had gotten in trouble with the law and needed to stay off the radar. It was then that I remembered a story that my first cousin told me years ago. After her husband, a man who I still love and an alcoholic, had hit her one too many times, she took her daughter and slept at a shelter because she was too ashamed to ask me or my parents to stay with us. After all these experiences, I started to realize that these people aren't part of the landscape. They're someone's cousin. They're someone's parent, someone's grandparent, someone's child. Someone somewhere finds them deserving of love. I got the same feeling when Stacy and I, my wife, went down to Tijuana this, this last year to learn more about an organization that works with migrants to find legal help with the U.S. immigration system. My job for the week was to keep any of the kids who came occupied while their parents met with immigration lawyers. I played with those kids, most of whom had woken up on a sidewalk or in a donated tent in a dirt lot that morning, who hadn't taken a shower in a few days, who had almost nothing to their name. They were so scared and yet so polite and humble and wanting someone to just see them. All this sounds like I'm painting myself as heroic, but it's far from it. This has actually become somewhat cathartic because the truth is the same fear that I had as a kid driving through the tenderloin is the same fear that keeps me from continuing to work with the homeless population all around us. I no longer see someone without a home as someone deserving of their lot in life, but I do see that myself in them. I see the similarities. 
I see how fragile the difference between my circumstances and theirs are. I see how great their need is, and it scares me. I know in some shape or form I'm called to serve people in these circumstances, and I find myself frozen. Which brings me back to the main topic. How could we respond when a child asks, why are there homeless people? There is a lot we could say, but as always, actions speak louder than words. What you tell a child might be heard, but how you interact with a homeless person can speak volumes to that child. And we should be aware that they are watching what we do more than heeding what we say. One last point. Jesus once said, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now what do kids possess that we often lack? Trust, simple faith, and the ability to see things simply. And here is our example of connection. If you're unfamiliar with Oscar the Grouch, he is a puppet character on the children's show Sesame Street. He lives on a street in a trash can, and his name, as his name suggests, he is a grouch, constantly asking to be left alone. Despite his look, however, Oscar is not characterized as homeless. The producers of Sesame Street created the Oscar character as a metaphor for people who are different, who look different, who live differently, who value different things than the mainstream. In our society, such people are marginalized. But on Sesame Street, Oscar is a valued member of the community. Yes, his misanthropic nature and his appreciation for what others discard set him apart. But what we see constantly is that the other humans and puppet characters are connecting with him. And the kids on the show attempt to include him in everything. They, we see that constantly with these kids. And then off the show, there are stories of kids in the audience at home mailing old shoes and used items to the children's television workshop in New York City to Oscar. These are things that Oscar appreciates. And these kids watching at home see this and they try to connect with him at his level. Oscar isn't the example to follow. How children accept him and see him as a person is. Maybe this is the answer to today's question. The younger members of our community can teach us. Maybe this is what we can say to kids who see the homeless persons among us. You're right. You see he is a person. And no matter how scary or mean or easy to ignore he might seem, God sees him too. And God loves him a lot. Thank you for seeing him. I need to remember to see people too. Thanks so much, Pastor Mark. Really, really wonderful, helpful, personal, and uh, a great exhortation to us all. What I'd like to do in affirmation of all that Pastor Mark shared is to dive deeper into one of the passages that he referenced to give us all a good contextual understanding of Jesus' teachings, because for all of this, we are rooted in the way of Jesus, and study and critical thinking is all part of how we understand better what that way really is. So the phrase, the poor you will always have with you, is frequently cited in Christian circles and misunderstood to mean a couple of things. First, some Christians will cite this verse to suggest that what is really most important to Jesus and therefore to Christians is someone's spiritual condition, not their economic condition. Now, what this kind of view does is split apart 
those two aspects of our humanity, and it prioritizes one over the other, the spiritual over the material. And as we have discussed before, this does not reflect the historical agenda of Jesus and our faith tradition, which is to bring salvation, rescue, and reconciliation to the whole of who we are, both the spiritual and the material. And if I was to push this even further, I would propose that the first century mind of Jesus' day would not have even conceived of the split. The material and the spiritual are essentially two manifestations of the exact same condition. Let me say that again. The material and the spiritual are essentially two manifestations of the exact same condition. They are intricately tied together, essentially as one. And we see this throughout the biblical narrative. If we're going to talk about salvation, it is both spiritual and material. Uh, just consider the Exodus story as an example. They needed to be physically, materially saved from the physical bonds of Egyptian slavery. In addition, they needed to be spiritually saved from the spiritual bonds of Egyptian religion. James actually writes about this as well when he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So first, Christianity has interpreted this passage, the poor will always be with you, through that split view of humanity. And second, Christians have interpreted this passage to mean we should just simply surrender to the fact of, as Pastor Mark mentioned, the inevitability of the reality of poor people amongst us. In some senses, look, this is just the way things are. And this has led some of us to philosophies of how to explain the existence of poverty, such as this is God's design and destiny, that some people are just going to be poor. Of course, this idea can give rise to the next logical idea, then, that some people, by God's design and destiny, shall be rich. This is actually one aspect of what is known as the prosperity gospel. Make sure you're on God's good side and you will materially benefit. Perhaps the most pernicious and common philosophical explanation of poverty are those that lead to self-justification by assigning personal responsibility to the poor person. This kind of thinking goes like this. That person is poor because they made bad choices. They chose not to take care of themselves or they're too stubborn to take advantage of the many resources that are available. And so, well, what you going to do? What this kind of explanation implies then is that the reason why I'm not homeless is because I made good choices and I was upright. This is actually the kind of self-righteousness that our Christian tradition would say is sin. And it completely ignores societal, environmental, or systemic issues. And psychologists actually have a name for this phenomenon. It's called the fundamental attribution error. It's also called correspondence bias. The psychology works like this. 
If you happen to see someone with an unwieldy child misbehaving, you say to yourself, <laughs> look at those parents. They must be horrible parents. But when your child is unwieldy and misbehaving, it is clearly, look at this child. It's my child's fault. Crazy kid. The fundamental attribution error attributes the causes of our misfortune to external factors, such as circumstances or events beyond our control. I was late because of the traffic. But when it comes to other people, we attribute poor behavior to internal factors, such as character flaws or lack of discipline. They were late because they just can't get their life together. I would like to propose to you, my friends, that Christians who interpret the poor will always be with you through the lens of inevitability and the prosperity gospel or the fundamental attribution error is a misrepresentation of what Jesus is doing in this passage. Let's read the section where this passage comes from, and then I'd like to invite you to consider some alternative perspectives. Now, while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when the disciples saw it, they were angry and said, why this waste? For this ointment could have been sold for a large sum and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She has performed a good service for me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. By pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. As always, there's a lot to point out here, so let's just start with a few observations. Jesus is at the house of Simon the leper, someone who, by his very physical condition, is marginalized and most likely poor, struggling to get along in the society and economy in which he lived. Lepers couldn't participate in the community fully and completely because of their condition and because of the beliefs about leprosy, and so he most likely was dependent upon the good graces and generosity of others in the community who had means and compassion. So right at the very beginning, we see Jesus visiting a poor person in the person's house, something that is akin to what Pastor Mark testified to earlier. Second, the town of the man's home is Bethany, Beth Ani, a name that means house of poverty or house of suffering. My apologies to anyone out there named Bethany. And so already at the very beginning of this section, there are these literary and narrative cues prompting you to consider that poverty is going to be a big lesson here in this story. Third, the Greek title Christ is a translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah, and it gets its definition from somebody who has been doused with oil, or some like to say paste. And footnote, just for kicks and giggles, for those of you interested, the word for toothpaste in modern Hebrew, Mishchat, comes from the same word for Messiah, Mashiach. Yes, every time you brush your teeth, you are anointing them. Though we should stop there and not declare your pearly whites actual messiahs. Anyway, this story of the woman anointing Jesus' head with oil is the only recorded time that Jesus is actually anointed. The action that ritually declares him to be the messiah 
the Christ happens here. Consider that. We take the idea of Jesus the Messiah, or using the Greek translation, Jesus the Christ, as a given. But did we ever stop and think about where did that actually happen? It's here in the anointing at Bethany in the home of Simon the leper. In a city whose name means suffering, at the home of somebody who is poor and marginalized. And fourth, last for today, the phrase, for you always have the poor with you, is actually a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 15, which begins, every seventh year you shall grant a remission of debts. This passage that Jesus quotes from is an explication of an economic system that ensures that no individual is left burdened with debts. And that will be the reality, quote, if only you will obey the Lord your God by diligently observing this entire commandment that I command you today. And as we mentioned earlier, that material condition is one and the same with the spiritual condition as just mentioned. It continues on. Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought, thinking, ah, the seventh year, the year of remission is near, and therefore view your needy neighbor with hostility and give nothing. Don't do that, it says. The passage concludes, give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so. For on this account, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Since there will never cease to be someone in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. Jesus' quotation from Deuteronomy 15 is a reference to the year of Jubilee, an Old Testament practice in which all debts are wiped away, giving the entire community an economic restart. The goal? Ensure that no one in the community is left in need. Now, what is interesting is that the biblical prophets picked up on this theme when referring to the Messiah, the anointed one that was to come. Isaiah 61 is the central passage, reading famously, The Spirit of the Lord my God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me, there's that key phrase for the Messiah, he has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners. Later in verse 8, it reads, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. The Messiah according to this passage, is going to be the one to bring about the year of Jubilee, the transformation of the societal and economic systems that leave people, especially poor and disenfranchised people, behind. This becomes the great expectation for those who have suffered at the hands of unjust systems. So, here is Jesus at a poor person's home in a village named for poverty and suffering. And this woman, by her actions, is declaring that Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah that will bring about the spiritual and material transformation declared in Deuteronomy, exemplified by the year of Jubilee, the forgiveness of debts, freedom for the captive, good news 
for the poor. And the disciples complained that the anointing oil could have been sold and the money given to the poor. Now think about that juxtaposition for a moment. The disciples' complaint was to advocate for charity. The woman's actions in anointing Jesus was to advocate for revolution. The disciples' vision was be kind, be generous. But nothing really changes regarding the systems and circumstances that construct a society that keep people poor and marginalized. The woman's vision was declaring that I see in Jesus the hope that those societal systems will be redeemed, transformed, so that no one is kept poor and marginalized. In the words of Willie Baptist, in quoting Martin Luther King Jr., the disciples wanted to throw a coin to the poor. Jesus, the Messiah, wants to throw away the system that causes and perpetuates poverty. In a, in a system that has it, that a very few benefit from, from the suffering of so many. Poverty is not just a result of policy. The very way that the system is constructed, it produces poverty. King brought this out, uh, Dr. King, Reverend Dr. King brought this out before he died about how true compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. I'm quoting him. Uh, he says it's about reconstructing the very edifice that reproduces the beggar. Well, this, this structure or this edifice not only produces the beggar, it produces billionaires mm -hmm. huh? by the very nature of it. And those billionaires proceed to maintain their uh, system that they benefit from. Mm -hmm. And, and on the other hand, the poor is forced in a position to kill the system before the system kill, kills them. When people hear about the Poor People's Campaign, they think that the Poor People's Campaign is just about poor people. Um, they see poor people only in sense of either charity or, or maybe crim criminality or something like that. But the real thing that we're looking at, and this is what analysis show, is that the position of the poor is only anticipating Mm -hmm. the position of increasing segments of the population. I might be poor today, but you can be poor tomorrow. I might be homeless today, but you can be homeless if you have a health care crisis or you lose your job. Huh? So this is not about how we're going to help those people over there. And we're going to feel sorry for those people over there. This is about your family, your future, all of our families and all of our futures. So my friends, whenever you hear anyone use the phrase, well, the poor will always be with us, Quoting Jesus in this passage to mean either acquiescence or indifference or even self-righteous justification, just remind them and yourself that this was the only recorded story in which Jesus is anointed Messiah, Christ, at a leper's home in a village named for suffering. And while the disciples complained about a bit of money, essentially advocating for flinging a coin to the poor, this woman and the anointing of Jesus was amplifying and declaring the hope of the transformation of society. Thank you again to Pastor Mark for his sharing, for I found in his testimony and teachings a beautiful microcosm of this very way of Jesus, and I hope that what I provided complements in the full teaching for today. As we move to communion, I want to invite you all to consider how this ritual that we participate in each week is both a declaration of our spiritual condition and our material hopes.
Jesus' death and resurrection is the culmination of his life and teachings. And as we take the bread and the wine or the juice, we are declaring and proclaiming his death, as Paul says, as a reminder to each of us that there are significant consequences, as the Deuteronomy passage teaches, to disobedience and corruption in our world. And so we partake in these elements then to express our gratitude to Jesus for bringing redemption and rescue to all of the darkest places in this world, to all facets of our society and our systems, to express our hopeful anticipation that even out of all of that, new life can rise up out of the grave. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All and truly all are welcome at this table.